May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Well, I wonder how many of you uh, here tonight like films that are origin stories. Um, They seem to be a big deal at the moment. If you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about when I speak about an origin story, um, then an origin story is a film where we see the beginning of a character. We see the the first chapter. Um, They're not like sequels, which come after the original film, of course. In an origin story, we get the backstory. Uh, We get the making of a hero or a villain, and Batman and Spider-Man and Superman all have um, origin stories. And the Apostle Paul, he's not a superhero, but the Apostle Paul has an origin story uh, too. And our passage is that story. It doesn't tell us that Paul had um, superpowers, but it does tell us uh, kind of where he came from and where his gospel came from. And unlike the films that uh, we often watch and quickly forget, this origin story matters hugely. And we might be tempted as we look at it to think, well, let's just hurry on and get to the next part, the meaty stuff in Galatians. Chapters uh, 3 and 4 are really uh, meaty. But I think this passage is really important. It has uh, a lot to teach us. And so what I want to do is try to answer two questions tonight. We'll spend the same amount of time on each uh, one. And the questions are really simple. What and so what? What and so what? What happened and then what does it mean for us? And I think we're going to see that Paul's story, the what, is a story in four acts. A story in four acts. That's our first uh, point. Um, In this passage, Paul makes clear that the gospel he preaches is God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. He didn't receive it from any other man. No, it came from Christ. And it all began with a transformation. That is the word that you'd see on screen as the curtains rise and Act 1 begins. Transformation. Because this is a tale of how a persecutor became an apostle. And Saul's mission had been to exterminate Christians. And he was someone who was really proud of his religious achievements. You can see that in verse 14. But the risen Jesus had other ideas for him. And he stopped him in his tracks. This had all been planned. Before Saul had ever been born, God decided to call him by his grace, verse 15. And he did it for what I think is quite a surprising reason. He chose this real religious insider to be the man who would spread the gospel out to outsiders. And as verse 23 puts it, people started to hear that the one who used to persecute persecute Christians was now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
And in telling this part of his story, Paul is saying, I did not choose this. The false teachers will tell you that um, I made up my call to ministry. And yet Paul says, no, I was the most unlikely candidate. I was doing the very opposite of that. That's act one, transformation. In verse 17, Paul's story, it takes an unusual twist. This is act two, and it is isolation. He goes to Arabia and then to Damascus, and look at the beginning of um, verse 18. Only then, after three years, does he go up to Jerusalem. It's quite a striking detail, isn't it? 156 weeks, um, 1,095 days, I think my maths is right. What is all that about? Well, we don't know for sure. But one suggestion that I uh, find quite compelling is that this experience, it paralleled the experience of the other apostles. And how long had they been with Jesus? They'd been with him three years, hadn't they? And maybe this was a kind of similar training time for Paul, a time to get away, a time to be with Jesus, to be close to him before he then launched out on his ministry. And whatever happened, what is clear is the real sense of independence Paul had. He only sees a handful of the other apostles at this point. He has a short stay with Cephas, that's Peter. The only other one he sees is James, the Lord's brother. It would be great to be a fly on the wall for that conversation, wouldn't it? And then he's off to share the gospel in Syria and Cilicia. And if the meaning of Act 1, transformation, is that the gospel didn't come from him, the meaning of Act 2, isolation, is that it didn't come from any other man. Transformation, isolation. Act number 3 is preservation. Preservation. Um, In verse 1 of chapter 2, we get one of those um, flash-forward moments that you often see in a film. Fourteen years later, uh, those are the words that would flash up on the screen if we were watching this at home. And Peter goes up to Jerusalem again. Uh, This time he has Titus with him, um, a believer from Greece. And he is there to let the apostles in Jerusalem know that his gospel is kosher. I set before them the gospel I preach, verse 2, to make sure I wasn't running in vain. And it's precisely at this uh, moment, in the middle of a church committee meeting, what we would call uh, this kind of event, that the gospel comes under attack. And you see, this origin story is also a spy story. And there are shades of uh, John le Carre about this. Um, Some false brothers creep in to spy out the freedom that Paul and co. have in Christ. Verse 4, they want Titus to get circumcised. 
And they're not just spies, they are potential slave masters. And Paul says to them, we did not yield even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved, there's our key word, for you. Now maybe you're thinking, what is the big deal here? And what's really interesting is that there was a time when Paul allowed one of his co-workers to get circumcised. And that person was Timothy. And his father was a Greek. His mother and his grandmother were Jews. And you can read in Acts 16 about how he is circumcised. But that happened not because of peer pressure. It happened so that Timothy would be a more acceptable witness to Jewish people. And Timothy was circumcised for the benefit of other people and to avoid being a stumbling block to their salvation. But Titus, the situation with Titus was different. He was being told he had to be circumcised. That if he wasn't, he wouldn't really be saved. And Paul says, no chance. No chance. Notice he says that this is going to preserve the gospel for the Galatians. And that means that if he'd given in at this point, if he had had Titus circumcised, the gospel could have been lost. He would have been saying, what Jesus did for Titus wasn't enough to save him, and it isn't enough to save you. Now, we're going to um, apply these things more fully soon, but just notice one little detail, one thing to chew on here, and that is this, that the gospel always comes with enemies. And often those enemies are religious. And so we, we should never be surprised when Jesus is opposed in a church building or behind a lectern like this. Transformation, isolation, preservation, final act is confirmation. And in verses 6 to 10, Paul makes clear that the message he shares comes with the full backing of the Jerusalem apostles, the men who ate and drank with Jesus, the original apostles. And yet, at the same time, do you see what Paul calls them? He says, those who seemed influential or seem to be pillars. It's quite an interesting um, turn of phrase, isn't it? I think it's really helpful to remember the context here. The false teachers plaguing the Galatians, they were constantly dismissing Paul. They were looking down their noses at him. Um, and they viewed him as inferior to men like Peter, James, and John. But Paul isn't interested in any of that nonsense. And he isn't intimidated by the false teachers or his fellow apostles. Now, what matters most to him is God's approval. And John Stott writes 
this. Paul's words are neither a denial of nor a mark of disrespect for their apostolic authority. He is simply indicating that although he accepts their office as apostles, he is not overawed by their person as it was being inflated by the Judaizers. Now, just before the credits roll on Paul's origin story, uh, the camera cuts to him um, receiving the right hand of fellowship um, from these men. And this, along with Paul's acceptance of their call to remember the, the poor, was a sign that they were preaching the same message. They may have had very different roles, but they were saying Paul is one of us. Now, maybe you're thinking, that is all uh, fine, interesting. I wish you'd bought some, uh, brought some popcorn. Um, I know you're a history teacher by training and you like this kind of thing. What on earth does it have to do with us? That is the question I want us to think about. We've thought about the what. What about so what? I think this is a story with at least four different applications. And the first is this, grace to celebrate, grace to celebrate. Paul's story was a story all about God's undeserved grace while he was a long way off, before he had ever looked for Jesus, before he ever showed any interest in following him, Jesus came and found him. He interrupted his plans. He sought him out. Some of you may have heard uh, the famous phrase, the medium is the message. And this is an idea developed by the Canadian communication theorist uh, Marshall McLuhan in the 1960s. The medium is the message. And he wrote it um, at a time of great technological change. And to put that theory very simply, he argued that how something was communicated um, on a screen, for example... Well, that was almost, if not as important as what was actually being said. And in one sense, this was true of Paul. The medium was the message. Because of his background, because of the dramatic nature of his conversion, he became a kind of living embodiment of the gospel, the gospel he preached. He was a kind of walking talking sermon. And people were to look at him and think, if God could reach down and change him, well, then he could change me. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, or listen along as I read from this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. And here's Paul giving his testimony again. And in verse 15, he writes this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the, worst, the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those 
who were to believe in him for eternal life. Look at what happens when he finishes that sentence. Can you see it? It's a kind of explosion of praise, a wonderful explosion of praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. God's grace in his life makes Paul praise, makes him celebrate, makes him overflow with joy. It's the same thing back in Galatians chapter 1 verse 24. People praise God because of his grace. Are we happy celebrating God's grace? Sometimes, and I know you'll find this very hard to believe, but those of us from a Reformed tradition, people like me who love uh, old guys like Calvin and Co., we, uh, we aren't always viewed as big celebrators. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, I'm being a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, of course. Maybe tonight we need to refresh our commitment to praise God for his grace, to actually get into the spirit of somebody like John Calvin, who would agree wholeheartedly with Paul, to bring a little bit of the joy of heaven to earth whenever we see one sinner repent. So grace to celebrate. The second thing we see is truth to embrace. Truth to embrace. Paul's gospel is God's gospel. There is no lost message of Jesus that's been corrupted by Paul. And there's no lost message that we need to rediscover. No, the gospel Paul preached came from the risen Christ. And his gospel was Christ. Exactly the same as the message shared by his original apostles. And what that means is, as Paul says in Romans 2 and Peter says in Acts 10, God shows no partiality. The gospel is for anyone, for everyone. One of our human tendencies is to divide. And we love factions. We love tribes. And this was a big issue in the first century as it is today. We'll see more of this in the second half of chapter 2. But this passage reminds us that whoever we are, religious insider like Paul or outsider like Titus, all of us need the gospel. None of us are accepted by God because of our track record. See, you, have may, you may have been in church from the Sunday after the day you were born. You and I may have a spiritual CV of childhood camps, steady church attendance, sacrificial giving, maybe even church leadership. Or we may have turned to Jesus after decades of mess, decades of sin. But all of us need God's grace. All of us need Jesus. All of us are equal in his sight. And if the same medicine is required by all, if God is 
shows no partiality, well then who are we to do otherwise, to do that? As the old hymn puts it, nothing in our hands we bring, nothing. Simply to the cross we cling. That takes me to the third application. Freedom to protect. Freedom to protect. Two of the commentators describe um, Titus as a test case. I'm sure you can see why. Because in this apparently small incident, the gospel was at stake and Paul was unwilling to bend. And you and I are called to show a similar inflexibility. We should never allow others to load extra burdens not mandated in Scripture on us or on other believers. We should never do that. And where Scripture gives freedom of choice on what to drink or not to drink, who to vote for, how to educate children, and a million other examples, we should not seek to control the behavior of another Christian. We should never say or even imply or let anyone do this to us. If you didn't do that, if you did do this like me, then you would be a true believer. See, what is the problem with that kind of teaching? It's often well-meaning. But what does it do? It takes our eyes off Jesus and puts them on someone else. That takes us to final application. Love to show. Paul and Barnabas are set apart to share the gospel with Gentiles. They're to tell people that they need a savior. They're to point them to Jesus, the light of the world. But do you see the practical note at the close? They asked us to remember the poor and Paul says he was eager to do so. And what this points to is the fact that in the New Testament, spiritual needs and physical needs are never split. They're joined together. Churches have deacons as well as elders, people who care for practical concerns in our church, in the community, as well as those who are called to pray and preach and pastor. And so always be suspicious when you hear teaching that tries to divide those things. Always be suspicious when churches so emphasize one that they completely ignore the other. Sharing the gospel with our words and showing the gospel with our actions are connected. And they are both expressions of God's grace. Listen to this. Paul um, speaking to Titus. Yep, that Titus. He writes this later in the New Testament. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own great mercy. But then he goes on to say this. The saying is trustworthy. 
and I want you to insist on these things. And why is that? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. To put it another way, we're not saved by our works, but we are saved for them. I think it was Luther who said, God doesn't need my works, but my neighbor does. And so maybe tonight God is calling you to some new work for the good of others, some response to God's grace. Maybe it's meeting the need of the poor. Maybe it's meeting the need of someone else, someone in our church family. But I think as we reflect on his story, Paul would want us to take our eyes off him, take our eyes off ourselves, and fix them on Jesus, the one who died, the one who rose, the one who called him on the road, the one who brought him to tell others of his grace. And so may he, may Jesus tonight, get all the glory and all the praise. Let's pray.